Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Learning to Live podcast. My name is Chaz Okada, and this week we have part two of the interview with Mr. Brian Wampler, founder and CEO of Wampler Pedals. Wampler Pedals is a guitar pedal company, and if you want to learn more about guitar pedals, how Mr. Wampler got started making them, and even how Mr. Wampler got to working with Brad Paisley, which is one of my favorite guitarists, then you should go check out part one, where he talks about all that stuff. In this half of the interview, we talk a lot about the music industry itself and what it's like to actually work in the music industry. What should a young person pursue if they're looking to get into the music industry or music equipment? And we also talk about fame and pursuing the right career path. And so this these are a lot of the questions that I really wanted to ask Mr. Wampler listening to his podcast and his YouTube channel. I think that he provides some really great insight in this half of the interview. And before we dive right in where we left off, I'd just like to share the short clip that I have of Mr. Wampler and I talking. What made you decide to start playing? Oh, man. So, well, I was playing piano a little bit before that, and I was mm -hmm. taking piano lessons, and I started playing piano because my best friend was really good at the piano, and I was a little jealous of him. <laughs> but then I got into guitar because... My parents bought me this Aerosmith Greatest Hits album. It's the red one with the mm -hmm. Aerosmith wings. Mm -hmm. And I'd take that to school every day as a third grader. And I'd put it <laughs> in the PE and we'd listen to music and they'd have a CD player. And my PE teacher would play that every class. <laughs> that's that's not usual for, for a seven-year-old, eight-year-old. Yeah. Well, I was also really into Prince and... Uh, who else share when I was really little? So my I think my parents had got me into that classic rock, more seventies, eighties right. style music from the time I was really small. Gotcha. Huh? That's cool, man. So how do you distinguish yourself in the industry now between your other pedal companies or manufacturers? How do you keep that Wampler brand strong? Um, you know, it's weird. It's Our industry, people tend to call like boutique, like the boutique pedal industry, um, because a lot of us started out building pedals in the garage and then the companies got bigger. And now, I mean, now we manufacture pedals. They're still made here in America, but... Um, it's not made by some sweaty man, you know, with, with a drill gun trying to drill holes in an enclosure. Um, so from that perspective, all the companies are similar, I, but I think even though we do have some audiences that cross over, so, uh, like I'll just name a couple similar brands. So you have, uh, Earthquaker Devices, Robert Keeley, who's been, you know, known forever for doing this type of stuff, uh, Analog Man. JHS, uh, who else am I forgetting? I know there's another one off the top of my head. Well, let's say TC Electronics. So anyways, those are a few companies that are somewhat similar to us. Um, so a person may have a pedal from all those companies on their pedal board, or if they're a super fan, they may just have like all, all of ours or all of JHS's or all of Earthquakers or, or most of, of that companies. So you have you have this culture where each company kind of has their 
quote unquote story and the marketing world will call it branding, but it's really like who you are as a company. So if you compare us to Earthquaker, for example, um, and, and I love those guys, so I'm friends with all of them, but their, their company, their story, their branding is radically different than ours. So people know that if you want uh, a device that makes quirky, weird noises, Earthquaker's your company. If you want a good overdrive or distortion pedal or something that's going, that's going to be like meat and potatoes, you're probably going to like us. Um, and so with those two different stories of branding, it kind of becomes a community thing. So we have a Facebook group that's, I don't even know how many people's on it now, 14,000 or something. And um, it's just people that like our brand, like talking about guitar pedals. And it's just a community of sorts. So I really think like, I really kind of approach it like that is just building a community of around, around the product, but not shoving, not shoving the product down their throat. I mean, especially in that group, you're never going to see me like, you know, do an ad or something like that. I, I, mean, I mean, other than whenever we do release a product, I'm like, all right, guys, the new product's out today. Here's the video. But you know, I, that's three or four times a year. <laughs> I think that's one big reason why I've, follow you a lot more or got into the Wampler brand is because I'd see these videos on YouTube and then I'd engage with it. You weren't shoving it down my throat like I mentioned earlier, but you just had that online presence and it wasn't just or because the way that I shopped when I was younger is I'd go into Guitar Center and look at whatever they'd have, but that might be changing now. But you were just there whenever I started searching for something. Because like huh. whenever you search for it, whenever you put in a Google search, this is something that I learned recently, is that if you don't show up on the first page, you're probably not going to get any business. Right. So you got to be the one that's there. And for me, when I was looking at guitar pedals, you were one of the people that were sh constantly showing up. You you worked in the algorithm, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. I mean, there's... um. There's a lot that goes on with it, and it's it's a moving target. So I remember years ago for, I don't even think it was a guitar pedal business. I think it was a different business I was doing on the side. Um, I've always started like little businesses here and there. But I what did I do? I think it was like like a link farm of some sort. So I don't even remember what the product was. Something, probably like an ebook of some sort. Um but I, I had created this website, and at, this is, you know, again before Google has grown, was grown, has grown into the huge monster it is now. But you could create other sites that would just have nothing but links, and so I'd create all these other sites and all these other pages that would all point back to this other page, and it temporarily worked for a little bit until they blacklisted the website. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and once you get blacklisted, like there's no getting off that list. So. Um, like I said, I don't even remember what product it was, but it, it definitely was a lesson in, uh, black hat practices never pay off. And not that that's like super black hatty, but I was trying to figure out like, how are these companies getting on the front, on the front page? Like, what are they doing? And I wish at that time I'd really had, um, well, for one, I wish I had found Gary Vaynerchuk's books, which kind of explained it in a way that I should have known all along, which is you have to think what the consumer is doing. Google is, is just following what the consumer is doing. So if people, if you put out something cool and people find it, then Google is going to make sure more people find it. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. So if people are watching your videos, um, then, and Google or YouTube or whoever, Facebook or whoever, see that 
you're getting a bunch of traffic, organic traffic from people that are sharing it and they're watching a longer length of it and they're commenting on it. Well, then it's going to push you back up in that algorithm. So even more people see you, um, positive feedback loop. Right, right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, that's, and that was just my naivety as, as a, a younger guy, not really, not really thinking it through. I mean, there's been, there's always those dumb decisions you make when you're running a business. You're like, should have done that. <laughs> what are some examples of dumb decisions that you've made in the past that you would avoid now if you were doing that again? Um, well, that one, of course, I mean, everyone knows that you don't make link farms, I would think. So, but, you know, at that, at that point in time, it was a common thing that lots of companies were doing. Um, I think with me, a, a big thing for me going back is I would have outsourced sooner. So from the very beginning, like I, like I was telling you, I was building everything. I was marketing everything. I was talking to the retail base, which is more B2B instead of business to business rather than business to customer, uh, which is two totally different types of selling. Uh, I was also trying to keep track of my financials. I was also, you know, making sure things were shipping on time and uh, like er everything that goes on in a business. I was trying to handle all that myself. And it slowed me down because um, I didn't want to spend the money for a good accountant. I didn't want to spend the money to hire someone to handle the business to business sales uh, or the things that I didn't want to do. Um, so looking back, I, I think I probably would have, I probably would have hired someone or outsourced some of those things earlier, uh, which is a bit what I've, what I do now. I mean, our business is very unconventional. It's, you can see I work in a 20 by 18 room or whatever this is, 26, I guess, by 18. Um, but the manufacturing takes place in LA and it's a hundred thousand square foot facility. So it's huge, but it's because I hate, I hate building the same pedal over and over. I'm just not wired that way. Um, in the same way that I, when I was really young, I tried doing like factory work and warehouse work and I just was not suited for that at all. By about the, you know, the fourth time I taped the same box, I was done and ready to quit. Um, so, so again, I, I, I should have seen those, I should have seen those things that I'd went through and applied it to what I was going through. Um, and, and that's, that's one thing though, that's really hard for a lot of people is to, you're, you're giving up control. So right now, like I was kind of getting back to what I was saying, um, right now the company in LA is, uh, they, they're our distributor and our manufacturer. So I create everything here. Um, I work with a couple different people. All, we're all in different states, believe it or not. And um, so I'll, I work with, a, with an engineer and he'll do a lot of the digital signal processing code. And um, we'll take this schematic, this final schematic, send it to another person who will do the layout. We send um, basically kind of a, a rough layout drawing to a mechanical engineer who programs the CNC machines to say, this is where we want the holes drilled. And then he, so he gets all the boxes drilled. Um, they go to Los Angeles and um, they build everything there. They paint everything there and um, do all the, we come up with graphics here with, with another guy in England and another guy in Virginia, I believe is where he is. Uh, so we come up with the graphics and the names, um, the marketing ad copy and all that sort of thing. And uh, we send that to the people in LA and they put it all together in one package. 
They handle all the business to business retail uh, retail side. So they have sales teams that, uh, you know, handle the guitar centers and the Sam Ashes and all, all the all the big music stores. And um, that frees me up to doing more more things that I like, which is the creative side. So, um, so to do it over again, I would have outsourced that sort of thing that I hated <laughs> and made my life a little bit easier and more fun. Um, I must say one thing is that I really love your graphics and on your pedals and your designs. I know that you just said that you'd rather have a Sharpie name on a metal box, <laughs> but I think that your pedals really look good. And also it, with the bags that they come in and mm. then they're carefully wrapped with bubble wrap, right. they come in a nice box. I think the whole package together makes it feel like a really solid product and it makes it feel as a consumer that there's a lot of care and quality that goes into the product well thank you yeah there definitely is i mean all all that stuff has been planned out so i mean so one of the things i'll do is i'll specify exactly what bag i want i'll say here's the uline.com part number this is the bag we want for this um and even down i mean the bubble wrap thing is more of a I mean, you know, that's more of an engineering, like I don't say it. We went 316th bubble, bubble wrap. <laughs> uh, but I mean, you know, they make other products as well, other music products, so they know how to wrap a package and ship it. But I mean, there's there, there's just, um, there's a lot of pieces to that. Like I, I actually feel that we could improve that process. Like I think we could do a better job of uh, including things with, with the, the pedals themselves, for example. Um so I don't know. We'll see. There's there's so many things that I would like to do that may not just ever happen or just may not be practical. Like, for example, I would love to send out a shirt to everyone that buys a pedal. However, it's really hard to do whenever you're shipping pedals to manufacturer or to retailers, rather, because they don't know if the, the customer buying it's going to be a large and they don't have to they don't have to manage that aspect of uh, we have all these pedals and we also have these 10 boxes of shirts. What size shirt do you want? You know, it's just, that's not the way that, that sort of business works, but it'd be cool. That might be smart branding. Have everybody <laughs> walking around with the Wampler shirts on. <laughs> so what's on the horizon for you? Is there anything that you're particularly excited about in your business or the industry in general? Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't talk a whole lot on record about what we're doing, of course, because that's, uh, I mean, you can't. Even though I'm friends with my competitors, I can't tell them all what 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 we're doing for the next two years. But I, I would say that I'm looking more into um, digital signal type stuff. So, uh, I, and we all we have done some DSP based stuff, but I want to kind of go a little bit next level with it and do something that's I haven't seen on the market just yet. So I know that that's pretty vague. Unfortunately, I got to be vague, but. Um, but that's what I'm wanting to do over the next year or two. I will still do some analog stuff as well, but I think, I think overall the gear is shifting where, uh, again, going back to digital stuff is more accepted and you can do so much more, uh, within code than you can do in the analog world. I mean, some people will, like if you're looking at delays, for example, an analog delay creates an echo in a fashion that's actually pretty inefficient. It's it's not a good reproduction. It's not um, it's not perfect by any means. But as guitar players, you kind of learn to like that sound, and it kind of becomes cool in itself. Sort of like a tube is a really inefficient way of creating more amperage, or I'm sorry, 
uh, voltage or amperage, really. Um, but you know, whenever you whenever you do that, whenever you're increasing the signal with the tube, then um, it does certain things to the guitar that it, it's hard to replicate in a solid state or digital environment. We've gotten better at figuring out what it is and how to do it, but it was it you know if you look at like technology like this from 2001 that was trying to and I'm pointing to a Line Six pod for those interesting interested. Um, back then, whenever they tried that, it just it completely missed. It sounded way too sterile, way too small, way too thin. There was too much latency. All these things. Um, and I think so. So now, I mean, now that, that stuff's more accepted. Um, we can have more fun with it, you know? For a young person or maybe an old person that's also looking to change their career path, what would you tell them if they're interested in the music industry? What what should they study or start to narrow down in if they're interested in guitar accessories or guitar mm -hmm. electronics or music electronics? Sure. So I think the biggest thing that most people don't talk about is um, separating making a lot of money from doing what you like. Sometimes those paths could cross. Sometimes they don't. Uh, most of the most of the people in the music industry really aren't doing that well financially. So if you're an artist, you can be a very and I know some some artists that are you know recognizable names who are not millionaires by any stretch of the means. I mean they're getting by. But I've known some popular artists that were doing part-time jobs, you know, working at Home Depot or something like that because they weren't able to make money. And um, some are, some are figuring out new ways to, to do that. I mean, that whole, that whole industry is changing. And the same thing goes with guitar gear. There's a lot of people that build guitar pedals that either are, are um, in the process of closed up, closing up, have closed up, or we'll close up. It's just not, there's, I mean, there's, I don't, I don't even know how many I'm trying to, trying to think. There's, there's probably maybe 600 different companies, maybe 500 different companies that start every year in our niche. And I say company, I mean, it might be a guy that's just selling something on reverb.com, you know, two pedals. And there's a lot of people that think that since they know how to build pedals, it's going to be easy to sell those pedals. And that's really the big difference. Like it's building a pedal and selling a pedal, two radically different things. Um, so it kind of, I mean, you got to kind of figure out if being happy and doing what you love is important, that's cool. But just understand that you, you may only be at $60,000 a year where if you take those same skills and you go to, let's say you go to the pharmaceutical industry. Now you may be at a $300,000 a year position, you know, so, but you may hate it. Not everyone will. I mean, some people will love that, but it just, everyone's so different. It really depends. I think a lot of it comes back to knowing you yourself, like who you are and how you work and what's important to you. Um, you know, like I was telling you before, before uh, a little bit earlier, I thought that having a bunch of money was going to make me happy. Or, I mean, I say a bunch of money. Having an, enough money to pay my bills and to buy some cool stuff. That's that's how I look at it. And it wasn't. It just, it at some point you make enough money where it's it's not worth it. Like the, th the things that you can buy with that money, 
is it doesn't create enough happiness for you to continue wanting to do that. And that's not everybody. That's just, it just depends on the person. So one thing that I talked to you about earlier is about fame and your thoughts on fame, because I know a lot of young people, particularly they, we grow up and we idolize these famous musicians or we have some sort of complex where we need to be famous Mm -hmm. or we feel like we do. And then hearing you talk about how these people are famous, but then they also don't even have a lot of money. It seems like, uh, well, maybe I should let you talk about your ideas on sure. fame, but putting the two together, it's yeah, I mean, not as glorious. There's been a lot of bankrupt famous people, you know? Um, there's been a lot of people that had a bunch of money and spent a bunch of money and, um, you know, now we're working at some restaurant waiting tables. Uh, it just happens. I mean, if you, you got to be... If you do make a bunch of money, you need to learn how to manage that money. And that's a whole different skill than, that's a different skill than making money. Um, and it's something that not a lot of school schools really teach, at least around here. I mean, I, my kids didn't learn that from school. There are, so f- fame is a fleeting thing where you'll see someone on Instagram and, you know, it's, it's the, um, it's the cliche of having a big wad of cash stone down on a bed or the Ty Lopez with the Ferraris in the back. Um, a lot of people look at that as, as a success indicator, you know, where if, if you are the guy that goes, goes to the bank and pulls out five grand, throws it on a bed, takes a picture for Instagram, deposits the money back in the bank and goes back to your job at, you know, steak and shake or whatever, you're fake. <laughs> I mean, that's, you're trying to, you're trying to, you want to be perceived by people in such a way that's just not authentic. Um, but I mean, even, even like, I wouldn't really consider myself famous, but I would say like, when, like when we go to guitar shows, I mean, I get recognized, but I mean, even that, um, I mean, it's, it's cool. To, I think you really have to, for it to be something that you chase, I think your ego has, you have to have a pretty big ego, you know, um, and maybe a bit narcissistic or narcissistic, but I mean, there's the famous people that I know and have talked to, obviously I can't name any names and not all of them, but a few of them. Um, there's always the problem of, of the fame, which is well, now you can't go to Walmart. You can't just go out to eat somewhere because you're, someone's going to, going to interrupt you. So if, if you just want a quiet night out with your wife or whatever, it's not going to happen. You're not going to take your kids anywhere. You're not going to Disneyland. Like your vacation on the beach, it's not going to happen unless there's some sort of disguise or you section off, like you rent a section of beach that, and you have security there that no one can get to. Like it, you lose that normal life that people kind of take for granted. I think, I think people take for granted the idea that you can just go into a grocery store and grab a gallon of milk. Um, if you're, if you're a famous person, you can't do that. You have to have someone else do that for you. Uh, and you may have seen the picture where Taylor Swift is being carried out in this big suitcase and loaded into a car. And it's because she can't do anything. Like she's a prisoner in her own, in her own fame, you know? So I think before people get too hung up on trying to be famous, it would probably be advantageous to them to think of what that would actually look like. Um, if it, if it's to make money, there's a lot of ways to make money without being 
in the public's eye of, of, of fame. Um, and, and again, there's also a lot of famous people that are broke. What would you tell somebody that doesn't quite know what they're good at or they're passionate about? How would you advise them? That's a question I see a lot. And it's hard to answer. Um, and even helping my own kids with it. My biggest, the thing I tell them is like, you've got to try stuff. You've got to just have to try things. Um, you're not going to figure out what you're good at by watching Netflix all the time. <laughs> I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, I mean, whether that's, sometimes that is college. Sometimes that's try a bunch of different jobs. I know like with my kids, um, like with my 18 year old who did, he was not in college yet. Um, he, what I told him, like, I don't care if you have a job, you know, like once a week, I really don't care, but do something like try, try a construction job, try this type of job, try that type of job, try, try, you know, all these different things. And every time you do something, you'll learn a piece about yourself that you didn't know before. And I think that's, it. you know, if you're just starting out as an adult, I think that's, probably the biggest thing that helped me personally. And I'm sure there's other things to do. I mean, there's, there's personality tests online that you can take that kind of will help you learn things. But I think, um, just trying new experiences. I don't, I think, I think it's hard to, hard to substitute anything else for that. I think that's, I've, I've heard that advice and that's why I started this podcast is because I want to get a whole sample of what people do in their daily lives. We talk about, people we or we tell kids oh it's cool to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer but us as young adults don't actually know what that means right and then so i think getting a sample and just reaching out and asking people is a good way that's that's similar advice to what i've heard right i mean and even me personally i mean i don't i don't think like this is the end of my road professionally i i don't i mean maybe but i know i have a lot of other interests that i'd like to do as well um and one of the ways that I find that out is I'm a big fan of a site called Quora.com. I don't know if you ever heard of that, yeah. but it's basically like a Q&A site. Mm -hmm. But it's it's set up in such a way that it's legitimate questions and legitimate answers, or it's supposed to be, rather than you know idiotic people trolling each other, which is what social media basically became. <laughs> but anyways, uh, digressing. So I'll look on that site for all different types of topics, and I'll just read through all different things. And sometimes I'll catch something, my eye will catch something, and I'm like, huh, I never knew that. That's interesting. That will lead me off on this huge, you know, this huge day-long ordeal on a Saturday where I'm, you know, looking up what happened in second century with, you know, some priest or something. Um, you know, just because like there's different aspects of things that, that fascinate me. And uh, so I think that might be a, a cool thing to do is just look through a bunch of different topics and start to start to recognize things that you at least have an interest in. And then when you do have an interest in, follow that through a little bit. You know, maybe maybe actually as you get into it, it's really boring, but maybe you put in some time and you learn a lot about it. And, you're, and now, you know, you know, you're an authority figure on this topic and now you can do something with that. Now you can start creating content about it and now you can start creating some sort of product around that content and that that uh, that viewer or that listener. You said something that reminded me so how do you deal with negative comments on social media or YouTube, especially? I know that a lot of people my age, we always worry about image. Right. 
How, how do you deal with that? Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, there are times where it's someone has said something that's bothered me. I'm pretty good at, at letting it roll off my back pretty much anymore. And it, it really kind of comes down to, I think, okay, so what do I do personally whenever I don't like a video? I just simply watch something else. I don't, I don't, I don't personally feel the need to say something negative to someone else. Um, so I, I guess me personally, I look at it like if, if you're the, if you're the person that watches a YouTube video and you have to think of the most hateful, hurtful thing to say, that's more reflective of you. So that means that you have a deficiency in your life that makes you an ass, you know, that makes you an idiot. Um, that makes you just really just miserable in general. So you're trying to make other people miserable. Um, I think it's, you know, if you're a 16 year old teenager, whether boy or girl, I think that can actually be a little more painful. Probably I see with my, with my daughters, probably a little more painful as a girl where at least, and I'm not meaning to stereotype, but it's just from what I've seen. Um, those people's opinions can sometimes carry more weight than they really should. Um, you know, and it's, it's hard, it's hard to get when you're that age, it's hard, it's hard to understand that the people that are saying those things are saying that because they're just being vicious. You know, they're, they're, they're angry about something in their life and they're going to make you angry too, you know? Um, and it takes a while. I think part of that comes with self-confidence. I mean, it takes a while to build that self-confidence to be like, whatever. I'm mean, like, you're, you're an idiot. I don't, why should I even listen to you? You know, you're trolling everyone's comments. So it takes a bit to build up that, that I don't want to say backbone, but it's just, it's more of a, it's more of a confidence thing in yourself. That makes a lot of sense. I guess switching gears a, quite a bit. Something that I notice a lot amongst bands, especially amateur bands, is that they overplay a venue. Mm -hmm. They play too loud. You as a tone chaser, mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? Or how do you avoid playing too loud? Um, you mean like how do my customers avoid playing that? Well, or Just how do you? Uh, this is more for advice for my radio friends. Okay. Um, I think... If you look at instruments, there are, um, they all should, like when you're mixing something or recording something and mixing it, they all fit into like different frequency spectrums. So what you'll notice, and I'll just, for example, if you're playing guitar, it all, almost always happens, and you have a fuzz on. As soon as you hit that fuzz on, especially if it's sort of a big muff pie sort of thing, um, it seems like you have to raise the volume up to get over the sound of the rest of the band. What you really need to do is is pick out some frequencies, probably more in the mid-range area, and shelve everything else off. So now your guitar just takes place in that frequency spectrum. Uh, same thing with drums. I mean, drums are, um, you know, a, a bit of high end, a little bit of mid-range, like on your snare and stuff. Higher mid-range though than guitar, and you know the lows are on the toms, and the cymbals are highs. Your vo voice is mid-range. Um, you know, your, your bass, of course, is a lower mid-range, not, not so much sub-bass like you would a kick drum. But if you look at, start looking at instruments as all, everything that fits on a, on a 20 hertz to a 20k hertz scale, if you look at it as like little pieces of the pie, they all fit in their own little spectrum. Um, and you just really kind of 
tailor your sound to fit there, I think it's easier to not have to turn up as much. Because when it, when everyone's competing for the ba- for the bass or for the mid range for the eight hundred hertz frequencies, then it be, becomes a volume war. It's it's this guitar player is trying to turn up louder than that guitar player, and they're both working at the same frequencies. And if they just operated in different sides of it, different like maybe one guy's more of a low mid range, one guy's more of a higher mid range. Um, I think I think that works a lot better. It gets muddy otherwise. It does. It gets very muddy, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to no, get, like, go from here to there. No, you're totally fine. What, what other things would you like to say about young people or advice or just things that have been on your mind, questions that you might have for a young person? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's so much questions as things that I've, I've seen others do that I know. Um. Like like my friends, or I'm sorry, my son, my my kids' friends. I'll, I'll see their parents. Um, you know, one may say, "Well, I'm a banker, so therefore you need to go to college to be a banker," and because that's what our family does, we're bankers. And I'm just using an arbitrary example, but I've I've seen I've seen people do that, and then I've seen how that kind of plays out over time. And sometimes it's okay. I mean, there's one person in particular that I'm thinking of who built a life doing what his parents recommended him do. They wanted him to follow the family business. You're going to fill this part in our business. And now he's, you know, almost 50 years old. He's doing good financially, but he's miserable. He's just miserable. Um, And he, he always says, I wish I would have gone back and I wish I would have done this other thing. Uh, You know, that's, that's what, what I, my love is. That's, I just, I'm too old to now, but I wish I would have not listened to my to my my dad who insisted that I do this in the in the family business. Um, and I think that's it's a very dangerous place to be. And it's and it's when you're when you're 18 or 19 or 20, it's hard to it's hard to say to to your parents that you love like. I know you wanted me to sweep the floors or or whatever, but I mean, not, I don't know. I don't know your guys' family dynamic. This is not about you, but, um, you know, but I want to be a lawyer, you know, rather than uh, a carpenter or whatever, you know. Um, I see that a lot. Trades are a lot like, especially in this area where there's most of the jobs are kind of trades jobs. There's a lot of uh, you know, dads who are carpenters that expect their kids to be carpenters and maybe their kids want to be an engineer. Maybe they do want to, want to start, you know, writing apps or whatever. Um, and some of those dads are like, no, you're going to, you're going to work building houses with me. You know, so it's, it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell your, your, you know, house framing dad that you don't want to swing a hammer. Hmm. That's interesting. A thing that I hear a lot is that there's a need, a deficit of people, especially in the younger generation, of who's going to go into these trade jobs. And I think that maybe it happens that way, but it also happens the other way where people push like, oh, maybe where I come from, where you go to school and everybody's expected to go to college Mm -hmm. when college isn't the best place for everybody. And you, you say, oh, you need to go be an engineer. But then if we push everybody to be mechanical engineers, then there's too many mechanical engineers. Right. And then suddenly not enough people to fix your roof or your ass fault in your driveway right and then then the trades jobs become the new engineering jobs yeah 
and then then it swings. So now we're in I, like I remember that in my age. Um, I graduated in 1992, and I remember at my school there was a big push to do construction, and uh, and not I mean not so much like college was cool if you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be an engineer like you're going to be something that requires that degree, right? Like I would never want a, a DIY doctor. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not saying college is all bad, but in, in my age, I remember that there was a big push to do those trades. And as a result, there were so many people who were carpenters or electricians or plumbers or whatever. And, um, and now like those, those guys are, you know, they've been doing this for 20 or 30 years. They're ready to, they're ready to retire a bit and, you know, slow down a little bit. And, um, and like you said, there's going to be a big deficit of, of that. And I, this may be one of those pendulums that just kind of swing, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It's, we've never had an age where we've never had an internet age where so many people could do so many different things. You know, I mean, I think that if you're doing anything with, um, Anything digitally based, so that could, that's basically electronic engineering for the most part. We're never not going to continue using technology. We're only going to make more and better technology, you know? So I would say if you that's what you love, then I would jump in that with both feet. But I, I don't I don't think I would ever, um, unless I just hated, hated um, you know, engineering in general, I don't think I'd ever say, well, I'm going to stop this because I think I can make a lot more money being a plumber. Uh, I think it really kind of comes down to what, like, do you like it? Do you enjoy doing that stuff? Like, does that fit your, your personality type? Like if you're an organized person and your, your personality traits kind of are uh, reflective of the job that you're wanting to do, that's good, you know, but like me personally, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I, and I probably couldn't be an engineer just because I don't have the ability to focus. Like I could not sit down and code for eight hours straight. I would, I would pluck my eyeballs out, <laughs> but that's just my personality. But there's some things, this is one thing that I think we might be similar at is there's very specific tasks where I can just sit down and work for hours. My dad gets up and yells at me because I'm at, up at 3 a.m. <laughs> doing something. He's like, go to bed. But I, I feel like there's some things that you're very good at sitting down for long periods of time or just focusing on like maybe building pedals and just getting so engrossed in that. But maybe other things, not so much. Um, you know, it's, it's weird. Like the things that I really like to do is I like to, and this is, this sounds really weird, but I just like to learn new stuff. I, I like to read a lot, but, um, and I like to, like, I'm very, I, I'm introverted by nature. So uh, I get more value out of just thinking a lot more times than I do, like being around people and talking about anything. Um, but I can't do that for eight hours in a row. Like e even now, like my, my workflow, it always is, um, like I'll be completely focused for 45 minutes or an hour, completely, totally focused. And after that, I have to go do something else. So a lot of times that's, I will just get up and I'll run across the road to my house and I'll make a cup of coffee and uh, maybe I'll do another task or, you know, maybe I'll fold some clothes that I have neglected, you know, last night or whatever. And then I'll come back here and I'll do another solid straight hour 
or another hour and a half or something. Like I, I put things in blocks. That's how I study. Is it? Yeah. yeah. I, I can't, I couldn't, I just can't do it for four to eight hours of, of solid something. My, my brain just turns to mush. So I'm, I'm much better if I take a 15 minute break and even just, you know, run down the road and run back and then I'm, I'm fine. I just have to do something to break it up. What about creative endeavors like playing the guitar? Same thing. Really? Yeah. Even hmm. uh, so much so that I don't really, I'll, I'll sit in with bands to gig every now and then, but playing a four hour gig is painful for me. Uh, the only thing, I'm only saved by the fact that there's breaks in between each set. Um, but even, even when I was younger, like we'd, we'd play for an hour, we'd have a 15 minute break. I would go sit in my car and do nothing. And just like, I just went quiet. I want no stimulation. And, and it's just, I had to recharge that way. Cause if I, I know, I noticed, um, you know, back then if I stayed inside where all the noise was going on by the end of that second set, I was hating life. Like I just, I couldn't focus. Um, I felt exhausted and tired and I just, I just, it couldn't make it work for me. You have such a keen (laughs) self-awareness. Or you could just say I'm weird either way. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. Anything else that you think might be interesting to mention? Um, I can't think of anything. Is there anything in particular that you had in mind you want to hit on? Um... I think that's a pretty good episode. Okay. Well, well, thank you so much for all your time. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. So that concludes the interview with Mr. Brian Wampler. I hope that you all enjoyed it as much as I did and found it insightful or valuable in any way possible. And I'd like to share a couple of my takeaway thoughts with you before we end this podcast episode. I would say that the biggest takeaway for me would be self-awareness. Mr. Wampler seemed to have a lot of self-awareness in the fact that he knew himself. He knew how he worked best, and he knew how he didn't work. And I think that that allows him to really move forward in a way that would allow him to leverage his strengths while not being burdened by his weaknesses. And not only that, is he's always willing to learn and grow. I think that that's a really important part of just living a good life is always looking at the world around you and paying attention to it, how it works, being inquisitive. He goes on Quora just for fun to learn things. And I don't know, I find myself going on a lot of websites too, just to learn things. I don't know why I like to learn things, but I think overall it gives you more context to put whatever project or whatever thing you're working on or thinking about it allows you to put everything all in a bigger context and it allows you to have more perspectives and solve problems in more innovative ways so i would say that those two qualities really stood out to me because in tandem they're really really powerful if you know yourself and who you are and you're constantly learning about the world around you you can figure out where the pieces fit together and where they don't fit together. And then I think that allows you to plan out your life more. Or if I've learned anything from these interviews, maybe I shouldn't say plan out your life, but at least these things can help you set better goals to try to achieve. Near the end, when we were talking about not knowing what you want to do or figuring out your life, it might be useful to put all these 
small scale pieces that like yourself or the things that you learn about in the world and then try to build up the mosaic of pieces the and see the bigger picture and you might find that even though the pieces might be brown or gray or black it might build this beautiful picture if you just take a step back and let the pieces fall together so i'd really like to thank mr wampler again for his time and sharing his story on this podcast if you found it at all valuable or insightful, I really encourage you to share it with a friend or a coworker or somebody that you might think would also get value out of this interview. And I also encourage you to check out the Facebook and the Instagram and the Twitter and the website. Those are all linked in the podcast description. And that's how you can stay up to date and also communicate with me. If you have any show ideas or show topics, or just feedback in general. I'd love to hear it. And it would really mean a lot if you rated and reviewed this show because it helps it get discovered. Like I said, the more people I can share just what I'm learning with, the more fun it is and the more valuable I think it is for everybody. And with that said, there's a lot of cool interviews coming up and I really hope that you stick around for those. So until next time, take care.